Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode 87 of Hack to Start. This episode features Rob Le Jama, the founder and CEO of Tiny Hearts, a six-year-old design studio in the heart of Toronto, Canada. Tyler and I want to invite Rob Le onto the show to share his story as an entrepreneur and product marketer. Rob Le began his journey into entrepreneurship while in university, building and selling his first startup. He then quickly began to explore creating mobile products, mixing design consultancy, and experimenting product creation in-house. Six years later, Tiny Arts has created several award-winning apps used by millions of people around the world. Some of these apps include The Next Keyboard, which was the most founded Kickstarter app when it launched, QuickFit, which was featured in a global Apple iPhone commercial based on its great design, and Wake Alarm, which was ranked number one in paid apps on the App Store. Rob Lay joins us to share his story on how he got into startups, how Tiny Hearts is different, the tactics they leverage to gain traction and be featured by Apple, and much more. This is an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it. Hey, Rob Lay, thanks for being on the show today. Cool, thanks for having me, guys. Frank and I are extremely excited to have a fellow Canadian entrepreneur on the show today to share his story on building Tiny Hearts, a product studio here in Toronto. But before we dive into that story, let's let's start off by getting to know a bit about you, of where you're from, what did you study, and how did your passion for entrepreneurship develop? Okay, cool. So I'll take you guys back. So I started, uh, I was born um, in East Africa, so I was born in a little country called Djibouti, and uh, I spent my first four or so years uh, in Somaliland, which is the northern part of Somalia. Um, and uh, then my family moved to the Netherlands, where I was there for another four years, and then we moved to Toronto. So I've been in Toronto since I was eight years old, gone through schooling here from elementary to high school to university. Throughout that time, I didn't really know much about entrepreneurship and I didn't really have a goal to be an entrepreneur. I actually didn't even know it existed until I got to around university. Uh, and that's when I stumbled across this idea of entrepreneurship. I saw a friend of mine who was doing some interesting entrepreneurial things. Uh, and then around that same time as well, I started reading a lot of blogs online. Uh, and so I found myself spending way more time reading the blogs than I was reading my textbooks. And at the time I was studying psychology in university. Um, and so I, I found myself naturally gravitated to these tech blogs and these startup blogs and design blogs and sneaker and streetwear blogs. Uh, and so kind of combined what I was like starting to build and develop a passion around, combined that with entrepreneurship and said, you know what, I don't want to just read about this stuff, uh, all this cool stuff on the internet. I want to be, uh, I want to be a part of the game. I don't want to sit on the sidelines and I want to start making some of these things that are worth being written about. So that's how it all started for me. And it's at that point where you created your first startup called Sneaker Play. What is Sneaker Play and what was it like building a company while attending university? 
So Sneaker Play is a, it was a online social network for sneakerheads. So uh, we, me and a few buddies, a couple buddies, we created this invite-only social network for people who are really, 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 really into sneakers. We were into sneakers at the time, not so much anymore. But uh, essentially, it was like a mini... At that time, the comparable site was MySpace. Facebook was still very early uh, back in 2006. Um, so essentially... Um, you'd have uh, profiles. There was also a forum, um, a messaging system for one-to-one communication and, uh, and a place where you could kind of battle. So just like Facebook had poking, we had these uh, battles on sneaker play where you could challenge somebody and have a fun kind of face-off to see whose sneakers were better, whose collection was better. Um, and so that experience of building a, a startup or a company while I was in university was really Really interesting because I found that I was actually learning a lot more from running the business and doing all the uh, all this, this the work around building sneaker play up than I was learning uh, in university. So for me, it was like I was getting double the education, and so that experience was really really uh, valuable. That's amazing. So so if you had to pick one lesson that you learned while building sneaker play, what would it be? So fittingly, uh, just do it. Awesome. Is that is that lesson? I think when you're young and you're naive, I think that's like uh, the best time to be making things. You're, you have less concerns, less fear. So I think those are like very important ingredients for learning because uh, that's, I think, like the best way to learn is to learn by doing. And um, you're not going to learn by doing if you don't just do it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of months, Sneaker Play was actually acquired. And what was this uh, process like for you? It was an interesting process. Again, uh, we were naive at the time and we were reading a lot of blogs and we saw that, you know, Dig at the time was rumored to be for sale. And in order for them to sell, they worked with investment bankers. So we said, okay, cool. We need to find some local investment bankers. Uh, so we went to a few events and we found a boutique investment banking firm. We told them what we were building, showed them our product, uh, and then worked out an arrangement with them. Essentially, they helped us. They created a package for us and started speaking to companies on our behalf. We would jump on those sales calls. So again, we got to learn about this whole sales experience. So the only unfortunate thing was timing was bad. So they did that for a few months. uh, And then around the same time we were selling, the stock market crashed. And so we had an offer uh, with a a venture-backed company uh, that was on the table. But um, that was withdrawn because around that same time, all the VCs, kind of like now, were uh, telling companies to be uh, their portfolio companies to be more frugal. And so that was kind of um, some bad news and bad timing, but it didn't slow us down. So what we did was we tried to continue the sale process on our own. So by that time, we we'd learned a lot from the the investment bankers, and we started doing some of that work legwork on our on our own. Uh, and then we decided to publicize it as well to try and bring some more leads. So we got a piece up on TechCrunch uh, that brought some more leads, and eventually we uh, we sold it on our own. That's awesome. It's great to hear you guys were uh, able to get that acquired. So today, you're currently the founder and CEO of Tiny Hearts, uh, a six year old design studio in the heart of Toronto, Canada. So can you tell us, uh, you know, what really motivated you to start Tiny Hearts? Around the time we were uh, wrapping things up with Sneaker Play is when the iPhone came out and when the App Store was just starting to blossom uh, and kick off. And I was a little busy with Sneaker Play stuff and uh, a web startup, but I knew I wanted to learn about this whole new mobile space. And I was just itching to, to make an app. Uh, and just like with Sneaker Play, learn by doing. Uh, so it just happened that, you know, I wanted to make an app. And then also the other thing that was happening in my life was I had just gotten married and I was expecting um, the birth of my first daughter. And so 
uh, I kind of combined those two and decided to make an app for kids as my first app, so an education app. And that's essentially how Tiny Heart started. It started with one app. And um, from that one app came a few more. Uh, six years later, we have six of our own apps under our belt, uh, more than 6 million downloads, and uh, and a business where we're making our own products. And then we also do, uh, like you mentioned, uh, design and product work for clients. That's awesome. And it's incredible success. And uh, I really like, really like the name. That Really good synergy, I guess. The name, I think it's, uh, it has an interesting story. What do you guys think? think of when you hear tiny hearts what comes to mind uh personally like a lot of like passion or or you know it, it's it's almost like a, i think almost like a a metaphor for canada too you know i think in, in terms of people with with a lot of drive but maybe maybe less thought of than than the u.s cool yeah um, my thoughts on it is just like a small collective of people you know together building something first thing that comes to mind oh that's awesome that's good to hear those are all like things i haven't heard before but that's like right on um in terms of things that we would want to be associated with so that's awesome cool and so what makes you know tiny hearts a little bit different than a traditional sort of design agency and what's your take on that whole space and industry we started off as a product company, uh, and now we're a hybrid product and services company. So I think that's what makes us a little different. We have consumer products that are on the market that are successful, uh, and so those products have led to us working with others. So other companies, after seeing some of the successes we had, reached out to us. Uh, a lot of times there was uh, an interesting opportunity to collaborate, uh, and then that's how kind of we started the two sides, the the product side and the services side. And I think there's an interesting synergy with both sides because our products get noticed and lead uh, lead us to getting interesting opportunities and collaborations on the services side. So that's been uh, that's been kind of our model. And I think that's a little bit different than the traditional design agency. And it's also a little bit different than the traditional startup or product company. We do a little bit of both. Uh, and I think we're starting to see a few more companies like that, but I think it's still a niche category. Do you see yourself ever veering towards one route and just going 100% down that one route? Yeah, I think that there might be there might come a time where um, we'll need to go all in on one. Uh, but part of me still can't, I, I can't really shut down the other side. I think there's still value in both, but it's just a matter of figuring out where where I can eventually add the most value. But I think there's definitely, there might come a time where that will happen. So what have been some of the, you know, the biggest lessons around crafting your your design studio that, that you guys have kind of taken out of, you know, the last six plus years? So a couple of things. We're very driven by passion and passion projects. So the idea of scratching your own itch is, is really, really important to us. Somebody who's really, really passionate about an idea or a product is always going to create a better uh, final outcome or final product than somebody who isn't. And one of the best ways to, to make sure that you have that key ingredient is by scratching your own itch. A lot of times when we're making our own products, we're scratching our own itch. And then when we're working with other people, we make sure that we care about the space that they're playing in. We care about the problem. Uh, and so that passion piece is really, really key. The other thing that I think... Uh, is important is building a reputation, a reputation for quality, reputation for consistency, uh, and that doesn't really happen overnight. That takes time. And so that's something that I think has been key. And then the last one is really just about relationships and developing those over time as well. That's some great advice. So one of the first sites that you ended up building was uh, Busy Building Things, which focuses on selling uh, different motivational products and items. Can you tell us why you decided to start Busy Building Things? Yeah, so Busy Building Things is another passion project. It's uh, what I would call a side project because at the time 
I was very focused on the app business, Tiny Hearts, but I also had this uh, this idea of busy building things. This name just literally popped into my head one night while I was working. I forget how it happened, uh, but uh, I'm sure it's happened to a lot of people where uh, you get this idea and then you go and buy a domain name. So I went and I bought the domain name Busy Building Things and I was sitting on it for a little while. Just the idea really resonated with me and I just didn't know what it was and what it could become. Uh, and then eventually I decided to turn it into a brand, create physical and digital product for people who are like me, right? So like if you're a snowboarder, you have a brand that you kind of associate with or that resonates with you. And so I saw all these different like subcultures and they had brands, but people who uh, were busy building things, people who were designing products or building companies, developing apps, or even like physical products or businesses based on physical products, they didn't really have a brand brand that could speak to them. And so I wanted Busy Building Things to be about that and to be about motivation and inspiration for that that type of person. So I started making prints, quotes, and I'm in a room right now, uh, which is kind of like a, a Busy Building Things gallery. So I have a bunch of them in front of me. Uh, so they say things like scratch your own itch, work hard, stay humble, do things, tell people, just ship it. Quotes from uh, the great philosopher Mike Tyson. Uh, Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. That was one of my favorites. Um, so essentially, we just put all this stuff up on an online store using Shopify. We created some free wallpapers so people could put it on their iPhones and their, their laptops uh, and just put it out there. And it, it resonated with people and it got picked up on blogs like Swissmas um, and the next web. Back then, there was uh, flash sales sites like fab.com that focused on the design community. And so we ran some sales with them. And that's how we got the product out there. That's awesome. That, that's really cool. And so one of the other products, I guess one of the next ones was uh, an intuitive alarm clock for the iPhone called Wake Alarm. What was the main motivation around sort of building that kind of application? Uh, yeah, so that one, again, was scratching my own itch. Uh, I wanted a better looking alarm clock. A lot of the alarm clocks on the App Store were really ugly. They had these digital like old school uh, UIs. And so that was one piece. The other piece was uh, I have a hard time waking up sometimes. So I fall into the uh, the heavy sleeper uh, camp and I wanted to make a product that would work well at waking people like that up. And if a product, if an alarm clock can wake up somebody who's a heavy sleeper, then for sure it's going to work for somebody who's a light sleeper. So those are a couple of things I was, I was thinking about. The other piece was by then I had created Pocketzoo, which was an educational app. Uh, and then uh, another game called Instamatch, uh, which was a game based on uh, Instagram's API. Uh, and so by then I wanted to make something a little bit more mainstream as well. And thought an alarm clock and solving that problem would be an interesting challenge because there was a lot of alarm clocks. So I needed to figure out a way to stand out. So that was essentially the motivation behind it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and stand out, you guys kind of did because uh, it was actually named, you know, number one or sorry, it reached number one uh, in the utilities uh, and a top 30 app overall in the app store. So what were some of the marketing tactics you used to kind of become mainstream and, and reach those milestones? So setting out to solve those problems in a, in a unique and differentiated way is like the number one thing. Like your product has to, to stand out and speak on its own for you and speak to your differentiation. Uh, and so a couple of things I talked about earlier was the other alarms were ugly. So we tried to make a really, really beautiful alarm clock. Uh, and then we kind of tried to make it a lot easier to use as well in terms of how you set the alarm. And that we were inspired by like the old school 
iPods, Clickwheel, and at the time there was, I think, Nest had just come out. Uh, so just a simple little dial interface. So we added that in there. Uh, and then the other piece of how do you make sure somebody wakes up if they're a heavy sleeper. And so we, we did this thing where you have to actually shake the phone. And then that's the only way to turn off the alarm if you put it into shake mode. And so that forces you to start moving early in the morning and uh, can get you easily out of your bed. So there's those types of features. And then, again, we differentiated in other interactions that we added. So we, we had this clever use of the proximity sensor. So you could just slap at the top of your iPhone to sn- quickly snooze the alarm. And then if you flipped over your phone in the morning, uh, that would trigger it as uh, you just turned off the alarm. So just with those types of features, and I think putting a lot of thought into the, the product and uh, a lot of iterations went into it. I would say like that's essentially that was our marketing strategy instead of, you know, we went in there thinking it was going to be a couple of months to build this out. It turned out to be a six month project. So that was the number one marketing tactic. It doesn't sound like a marketing tactic, but the product did our marketing for us. Uh, and so that helped us when we when we submitted it to Apple, they they noticed all that those tiny details. And and then they actually reached out to us uh, to try and feature uh, to feature our app at launch. So that's number one. Uh, how do you get featured? And for us, the product helped us do that. Uh, and then also speaking to your differentiation uh, in all your touch points. So in your pitches to press uh, on your website and things like the video. So we focused a lot on those things. Uh, and so essentially PR and that feature by Apple is what helped us get that initial uh, traction. That's awesome. And what were some of the biggest lessons I guess you learned over, over the lifespan or, or I guess maybe still still learning uh, in terms of what it was like to build and market Wake? So I think it goes back to spending that time on the product, making sure all the tiny details are right, because you really only have one chance to make that first impression, especially on the App Store. Uh, and so that's why this idea of MVP didn't really resonate with me because I don't think it makes sense a lot of times for the App Store. Because when you think about MVP, you think about something that's hacked together or not as polished. But if you're going on the App Store, you need to be super polished. So MVPs on the App Store have to look look really, really good and have to work really, really well and need to be thoroughly tested. Uh, and, and we had probably... I think 101 builds before we said this version is ready to go on the App Store. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> but obviously well worth it. Yeah. So what's next for uh, Wake Alarm? Uh, so Wake Alarm now has a few million downloads. Um, we, like like mentioned, uh, the app was featured by Apple as the app of the week. And it was free for, uh, free for a week. And since then, we've actually left it free. Uh, so we're planning to continue to improve the product and switch it and kind of completely keep it free and switch it to a freemium model before it used to be three ninety nine. So I think from this year onward, we're going to just kind of continue to push new features with that focus of keeping it as a freemium app and seeing if, if we can continue to grow it that way. That's amazing. I'm looking forward to seeing the, the new versions of Wake Alarm uh, throughout uh, 2016. So based on the momentum from Wake Alarm, you, you guys transitioned into another application called QuickFit, which is a popular fitness application that provides users with a simple you know, seven-minute workout plan. So with this application, what was the problem that you guys were trying to solve and who were your typical users? Ourselves again. So again, scratching our own itch here, we were working on, uh, or I was working on Wake a lot. And um, so I noticed that I was taking care of my health uh, as much as I should have been. Um, and then I came across this idea of the seven-minute workout, which is essentially what it sounds like. It's a seven-minute workout. Uh, 
high intensity interval training. Uh, so it's a workout that you can do anywhere, anytime without any equipment. Uh, and I tried it out for the first time. And those seven minutes were like pretty much it kicked my butt and I was sweating after seven <laughs> minutes. Uh, and, and I knew that type of workout would make a lot of sense for mobile. Uh, and I wasn't the only one. Uh, I knew there'd be a lot of other people trying to do that as well. Uh, and so I took that idea further and figured out, okay, how can I solve problems for people who are busy professionals or parents or people who just don't have time to go to the gym regularly? So these types of workouts make a lot of sense. You could do them at the office, you could do them at home, you could do them in a hotel room, and you're just using your body weight. We took that idea further and created additional workouts beyond the popular seven-minute workout. Uh, and so we did a quick abs one, which was seven minutes. Uh, and we did a, did a quick yoga one, which is about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then combined all of that into, uh, into one app. That's amazing. So based on the learnings that you, you had on the previous apps that you guys built and launched, did you use similar marketing efforts to launch QuickFit? And if so, what are the main steps for someone to launch a successful mobile application? The steps were very similar. The formula is really just like making a really, really high quality product, which is easier to say than do. Um, for this one, it was a little bit different. Obviously, uh, it was like a very custom interface. Uh, we focused a lot on the interactions and, and try to differentiate that way. With QuickFit, we still tried to, we still obviously focused heavily on the design, but it was content heavy as well. Uh, and so we had to do a, a video shoot for the exercises. Uh, and so we had to find the right uh, trainer for the seven-minute workout and seven-minute abs. For the yoga one, we, we found another yoga practitioner and teacher here in Toronto. And we worked with them and we actually ate our own dog food. And he came to the office and we, 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 tried, a different, we tried a few different routines until mm-hmm. we found one that really worked well. Uh, and then we recorded the video for those. Then we did voiceover for those. Um, and then we focused on other tiny details, like the color of the shirt that the fitness trainer was wearing matched the UI that we were planning to use. So those types of things, the shirt yeah. and the shoes, um, like so those types of features. And then we added on top of that uh, additional features that we thought would help uh, people kind of stay consistent with the workouts. Uh, so tracking features and reminders and, and those types of things. So product-wise, we made sure that uh, we were putting out something that stood out. And then essentially, like I was saying, the formula is make a great product, try to get featured. By this time, we had a good relationship with Apple. So we were already on their radar uh, and it was easier uh, for us to get their attention Um, and then uh, also try to get press. Uh, And so we did that as well because we had built some of those relationships. And then the other thing that I think is important in terms from, from a marketing perspective, especially if you have other apps on the App Store, is doing cross promotion. Uh, and we were able to do that because we had Wake Alarm. Mm-hmm. And then we could drive the customers who had already purchased Wake Alarm. We could let them know about uh, QuickFit. That's amazing. So on that topic of building relationships, QuickFit was featured in a major Apple TV commercial. So what was this experience like? Yeah, that was an amazing, uh, an amazing ride. I actually wrote about it on Medium. Um, so the, the way, I think it was just we were pretty fortunate that we were already on Apple's radar. I guess you can't really plan these things. Uh, they happen to be working on a, a fitness-focused commercial, I think, for the iPhone 5S at the time. And so there's a bunch of seven-minute workout apps out there, but they, I guess there was a few that were uh, highly regarded inside Apple, and our, ours happened to be one of them. And my hunch is it's probably because of the, the design, um, the, the focus on design. Um, that's one reason. And then we also focused on even like things that, 
you wouldn't expect. Uh, so we focused on design and then we also localized our app for 10 languages. Uh, and so Apple included us in this global ad because our app could be downloaded all over the world. And pretty much what we got a, an email from somebody who worked at Apple's ad agency of record. And um, they let us know that they are considering, uh, that they were considering putting QuickFit in an ad and asked us to sign some documents. Um, and then it was a really long waiting game uh, until they uh, until they confirmed that we would be in an ad and then we waited a lot uh, longer to just to see it. Uh, and then um, that's pretty much how it happened. It wasn't, it was one of those things that you can't really plan, but we're very, uh, very happy that it happened. What were some of the major outcomes of being featured in an Apple ad? I guess it's one of those things where like, like you guys mentioned, um, it's an app developer's dream, right? So for us, mm-hmm. it's like a dream come true, number one. Um, number two, you get a lot of visibility. Uh, and so it did drive the QuickFit app up the charts uh, because it was featured on television, but it was also featured on the App Store. Apple had a special category for all of the apps that were featured in the commercial. Um, and so that drove that drove a lot of downloads uh, for that period of time as well. So it did have an impact um, on downloads for sure. But just the fact that you're in a commercial, uh, I think, is, a, is definitely one of those like dream come true scenarios. It's amazing. I remember watching the commercial and, and seeing QuickFit being featured. It was honestly so cool to see a Toronto startup being featured in, a, in an Apple ad. So the next product you guys took on was the next keyboard, and it's the perfect keyboard for iPhone. So would you be able to walk us through the reason for building a new iPhone keyboard? Yeah, so we wanted to take on the challenge of building a keyboard because we spent so many years building apps. Uh, and then Apple opened up this opportunity to build third-party keyboards, uh, which are a whole different type of category. And so it's technically under Apple's uh, definition and extension. Uh, and so we wanted to take this challenge of building an extension or an extension of the iPhone that we use so much. And we use Apple's keyboard a lot. But um, there's a lot of these little pet peeves that we all have with the keyboard. And we wanted to kind of challenge ourselves to see if we can fix some of these things that we all love to hate. And we wanted to make a better, not just a better looking keyboard, but a a more functional keyboard or add some additional uh, functionality to the keyboard experience. Uh, And that's kind of how we started. Uh, And then the other thing with Next is that for us, it was our first real product that we co-created with the community. Uh, And so it's not our own problem here. We made an effort to speak to a lot of different in-person uh, at meetups here in Toronto, like UX, the UX Toronto meetup. Even before we started writing any code or started doing any design work or prototyping, uh, just getting feedback from people about their experiences. And we did the same thing online, on Reddit, on Designer News. Uh, so it was a very community-driven effort for us, but also one of the most challenging products that we've made. So with the launch of Next, you guys took a bit of a different approach when it came to launching the application by deciding to use Kickstarter. So why did you go the crowdfunding route to launch this product? And what what were some of the lessons you learned through this experience? And is it something you'd recommend to other entrepreneurs? Yeah, so for Kickstarting that uh, we had always wanted to experiment with, uh, and the timing just seemed right because we were working on this product that was a community-driven product from the the get-go. Uh, and some of our competitors had already hit the app store because because they they um, I guess they had maybe some of them had a lot more resources than us and we wanted to take uh, we needed more time to continue to build and continue to improve our product and so we decided that you know what was a good time we had a prototype 
and we had some marketing material and we were already getting ready for a launch on the app store, but realized we wouldn't be able to hit the December launch that we were aiming for uh, and said, instead, why don't we put this up on Kickstarter and start mobilizing a community, a bigger community around our vision, take some of these things that we were going to use to market the app on the app store and instead use it to get backers on board before we even have the product ready. Uh, and so that that was an, a very interesting experiment. And I think it worked, it worked out really, really well for us. The campaign uh, generated a lot of buzz and attention online. Uh, it got press on Mashable and CNBC. Kickstarter featured it as well prominently, and uh, it was one of the most popular campaigns at that time. I think it was December 2014 that we started it uh, and ended January 2015. And, um, and so we ended the campaign with about 7,000 backers uh, and was the at that time, the most funded app that was funded through Kickstarter. Uh, and uh, it allowed us to get all, all these people who were really passionate about this mission that we were on. Uh, and a lot of them were on board to just test and give us feedback. Uh, and we continued to communicate with them. We set up a forum uh, where we could communicate with them and some of the really active uh, beta testers. We even have a Slack group for them. So we're able to continue to speak to to our customers and continue to build with them. Um, yeah, so I, I wouldn't recommend it actually for apps uh, unless you know you can get it, get the app distributed to everybody. Are there some distribution issues uh, around getting iOS apps, paid iOS apps to everybody? I think I don't know if those are resolved now, but it is a different story if it's uh, it's a web based a web based app or an Android app. I think the distribution challenge was something that we didn't really do a lot of research into ahead of time. It's something that it's worth looking into. The other challenge of crowdfunding software is that when you're making software, you never really want to promise a launch date or promise features in advance. Whereas on Kickstarter, you essentially have to do that. Uh, and so it's a tough balance between communicating your vision uh, and also communicating promises. Um, so that's... That's something that we learned that was an interesting experience, something that you don't really face with the App Store. And so that's kind of, so there's a good and a bad of crowdfunding an app uh, and crowdfunding software. I think there's a lot of successful examples, uh, just that you need to do your homework. And we've written about this as well, and you can find posts uh, on Next, Key, uh, Next Keyboard's Kickstarter campaign on Medium. So to kick off this year, you know, Tiny Hearts, you guys launched and get another app. You guys keep launching apps. And this one was called Emoji Party. So for those out there that don't know what Emoji Party is yet, what is it? And what was it like building um, an Apple TV app? So Emoji Party is a, um, a party game that we made for Apple TV and for iPhone. Um, we're really, we mentioned and we we're talking about we're working on Next Keyboard uh, and a big part of the keyboard experience is emojis, uh, and, and we love emojis, and so we want to take that idea and create a game around it. Uh, and at the same time, the Apple TV came out, so for us it was a good opportunity to experiment uh, with the Apple TV and create this a game experience that you could enjoy with family and friends in the living room. Uh, but essentially it's 21st century charades with emojis. Amazing. So what was the process like for launching and building an app for Apple TV? So the process uh, wasn't too different in terms of developing it. Apple does a really good job of creating tools for, for developers. The, the things that we had to consider, I guess, for this project was more around uh, the screen size, the 
the distance that that you are, uh, how, like how far away you are from the screen, and the fact that the screen is not right in front of you and you're not touching it, so the input is totally different. And uh, using an Apple remote, uh, and so um, with the iPhone version of the game, you actually are holding the device, and where you're able to tap the screen and flip the phone and um, to to use that as an input. Whereas on the TV. We had to use a remote, and we had to kind of re- rethink some of the interaction based on that. But other than that, I think the experience was really smooth. Whether it was developing for for the TV or the watch, we just we are really uh, big fans of Apple's products. And like I mentioned, the best way to learn to develop, and usually we develop our own products on these new platforms, and then and then we can offer that as a service to others because we've uh, we've eaten our own dog food, as they say. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, what's next for Tiny Hearts in 2016? Are you got you know are you guys launching any more applications? Yeah, we're working on a lot more applications. Um, we're continuing to support our main apps of Wake and QuickFit and Next Keyboard for sure. Uh, Next Keyboard, the one of the big reasons we got into it, and one of the big things we're thinking a lot about uh, for 2016 is the whole messaging space, uh, and we definitely want to get deeper into that. Uh, the keyboard was one way into that space, uh, and bots is the other way. Uh, and so that's something we've dabbled with while we were building the X keyboard and something that we want to go a little bit deeper into in 2016. Uh, we're also working on um, a new game project that's a little less experimental than uh, Emoji Party, so something a bit more, uh, a, lar- a bigger project on the gaming space. So that's something that's on the roadmap for 2016. And we've been growing the team. We moved into an office pretty uh, a few months ago. Uh, and are continuing to grow our services side of the business as well, uh, and uh, are working on some really fun projects, some that we can share and some that we can't really talk about, but hopefully you'll see some of those up on our website. That's awesome. Looking forward to seeing all the cool apps you guys uh, launch over the coming months. So one other thing uh, I want to touch on is, is you know, you're a very passionate uh, blogger and present on multiple uh, online communities like Product Hunt and Medium. So how has this impacted both your personal brand and Tiny Hearts? And is this something you would recommend that more entrepreneurs spend time doing? Yeah, I think uh, that's something that you should definitely focus on. But I, I think it's more of like just kind of following through on those things that you're passionate about, trying to do great work, uh, and then talking about that and giving back and sharing those lessons. I think that's kind of how I look at it um, in terms of building a personal brand. I think it's really about building value and sharing that value. And that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, and I'm very fortunate to be in a position where I can share some of my learnings with others, whether it's through blog posts or through speaking at conferences um, or those types of things. Yeah, no, that's amazing. So do you have any recommendations on great content that you've come across lately, like either a book, video, or a blog post? Yeah, there's tons of great content on Medium. Uh, I love just checking the top stories every once in a while. There's an interesting piece from Chris Dixon that's doing really, really well right now uh, on the future of computing. So that's one spot that I check regularly uh, for content. Uh, the other app that I'm a big fan of is Nuzzle, which does a lot of the, the heavy lifting for you in terms of finding interesting reads uh, based on who you follow on Twitter. Uh, and then I'm a big fan of podcasts and I listen to a lot of podcasts like your podcast. Uh, and then more recently I've been taking in audiobooks. Uh, and so right now I'm just listening to, uh, the hard things about hard things. That's an awesome, uh, an awesome read or, or I guess listen in, in this case, but, uh, yeah, yeah really, really good message. Um, 
So yeah, those are some great resources. Do you have any last thoughts or personal models that you live by and you think other people should know about? I guess this is, um, I'm just looking at a couple of prints here. The two, two of my favorites are work hard, stay humble, and then do things and tell people, which I think is also one of the, the mottos of the, the crew at Shopify. Uh, and I think those are like really, really important ideas and words to live by. Absolutely. Yeah, those are awesome. Uh, Rob Lay, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, chat with us today. It was amazing to have you on the show. Cool. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hack to Start and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind the scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening and see you next time.